This morning is June 24th, 2007. If you're taking notes, this sermon will be titled, A Decent Proposal. A Decent Proposal. Not an indecent proposal, but a decent one. Now, I know none of y'all saw that nasty movie, right? Of course not. Me either. I actually didn't see that one. I have a real problem with movies with adulterous themes in them. It hurts my heart in a way that I can't simply move on like nothing happened. Now, we're all strange contradictions in terms. I have no problem watching Clint Eastwood shoot 100 people in one scene. It doesn't hurt me at all that these people made in the image of God were shot dead in a Western. Uh, that offends some people, and I understand. We're all put together differently. The movie that was called An Indecent Proposal, it was based on a mo- novel by a guy named Jack Engelhens. Can you imagine spending years of your life writing a novel like that? Adrian Lynn was the director, and it starred Robert Redford and Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson and all kind of beautiful people, right? And you remember the basic theme of this? The basic theme is that a very rich but wicked man sees another man's wife and offers her $1 million to spend the evening with him. And the whole movie is the stressors that are placed upon the young couple and the manipulation of the older rich man and the desire for wealth and all of those things that happen. What a heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching show. And yet we find very similar themes in the Bible. And God does this because He is relating to us in a way that evokes the most powerful emotions in human beings. And so I want to cover those this morning. I told you to go to Psalm 121, but I'm going to read you something out of Exodus first. So if you're reading or writing notes, Exodus 18.4, Moses says something. He calls out these words in the Holy Scripture. It says, After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son's name was Gershom, for Moses said, I've become an alien in a foreign land. And the other son was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. My father's God was my helper is what that young man's name meant. My father's God was my helper, Eleazar. Here's what's interesting about that. And you've heard some of this from Wednesday night, but bear with me. When in Genesis 2.18, God says, Wow, it is not good for a man to be alone. I need to make him a helper. I need to make him a helper suitable for him. And then He has man go through all of the creation looking at how things are paired off, naming them. He comes back and takes from man a part of man and makes a woman. And this was His helper. Helpmate, sometimes we say in English. That Hebrew word is ezer. E-Z-E-R. Your Strong's number for it, if you like to look these things up, is 5828. And interestingly enough, when you start to search for the word helper or helpmate from the Hebrew in the Scripture, you find it in the strangest places. When Moses is speaking here, what he is saying is, I named my son based on an experience I had. Pharaoh's sword was against me, and so I named my son Eleazar because in Hebrew it means God is my helpmate. Moses, when describing God, described God not as just a monarch, 
not just as a deity in a faraway place, Moses began to describe God like a bride would describe her husband. For me, in a time of trouble, God was my helpmate. You move on to Psalm 33, which I didn't ask you to go to. And David says the very same thing about God. In Psalm 33, in the 18th verse, he begins to speak about God, who is His help and has perfect love and perfect faithfulness. How did the Hebrews get this concept of describing God like their groom, like they were a bride and He was their groom? I told you to go to Psalm 121. This one for me is important. I told you during the worship service that one of the first Scriptures I learned as a little boy was Psalm 121. And I imagine that the reason they taught it to me first is because it's a struggle central to all mankind. What happens in Psalm 121 as we read these first few verses? It says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. We read help there and it sounds like, where am I going to get assistance? Right? I need some help over here. Where am I going to get assistance? That's not what this says in Hebrew at all. It says, where is my close personal helper? The one who is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The one who I know intimately and he knows me intimately. Where is that person that can help me like no other person on the planet? That's what he's crying out for. And as I taught about this Wednesday night, I told you that in the hills in Israel, there were foreign altars, things like Asherah poles. The Bible calls them high places because Israel would climb up on the mountains, look over and see what the other nations were worshiping, and they would be tempted in their hearts to worship what the other nations did to try to get what the other nations had. And so this person is in a place where he's crying out, where is my helpmate? Is my helpmate up in the mountains like the foreign gods and the backsliding Israel? No. My helpmate is the Lord, the One who made the heavens and the earth. Now, if you're a single person here today, you ought to be really paying attention to this. Have you ever felt incomplete because you were single? Examine your heart for a moment. Do you feel incomplete because others have made you to feel that way? Boy, when's so-and-so going to get married? Oh, I sure wish they would get married. I mean, golly, the clock's ticking. All of those things people put pressure on. The Bible describes God as a father to the fatherless, a husband to every widow. The Bible describes God as that thing which completes a single person in no other way. In fact, the Bible actually teaches through Paul. An apostle stood up and said, I wish everybody had the same gift I had. I wish you were all single. He didn't find himself incomplete in any way. In the age to come, we'll be like what? Angels. And what else did Jesus say? Neither marrying nor giving in marriage. There is a place in the kingdom of God where you sincerely realize that God is your helpmate. So then what is the point of marriage? Why do we go through this whole thing? My wife's not with me today. I feel a loss. I want to be honest. I mean, one day without her, and look, you see the kind of clothes I picked to wear. Matt's wandering around. It's different without our helpmates. We feel incomplete. What marriages are is not the end-all, be-all to human existence. What marriages are is a divine picture of a God who dwells in the highest heavens 
wanting to unite with His people on earth. In fact, you might say that the perfect representation of this would be as if you had something that was all of God's presence and all human beings and it merged into one entity. That's right, we did have something like that. Jesus, a perfect merger, a making of one new entity out of something that was separate, humanity from God. In Psalm 121, you hear the language. You hear the language of, I hate to say it, it sounds corny, love. Listen to this. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my helpmate come from? My helpmate, my groom, comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Think about a young woman speaking about her husband in these words. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is like two young women who have just gotten married and they're arguing about whose husband is better. says, "Uh uh-uh. Mine watches over me even while I'm sleeping. And the other girl says, well, yeah, well, during the day, mine won't let the sun beat down on me. He carries around an umbrella everywhere I go. Oh, yeah, well, mine won't even let the moon do that to me at night. Well, mine watches over me going in and coming out. It is speaking in terms that describe God as a loving groom watching over His new bride. How awesome is that? Now, you see, I mean, I'm not a dainty little guy. I, uh, by my European friends, they saw me as somewhat barbaric. Good news is they see all Americans that way, you know. I'm not speaking about something that gives us an effeminate nature. Not in any way. But what I am talking about is that the God of the universe desires, with, like a man desires to be married, to be one with us. And the Hebrew Scriptures paint this picture. And it really, really gets to be a pretty thing. I thought we might look at where this idea comes from, though. So turn with me to Isaiah 62. Let's read Isaiah 62, 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hezbah. That means my delight is in you. And your land will be called Beulah. That means married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries his maiden, so your, read your footnote, builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The prophetic picture began to describe God as a young man competing for the love and affection of a young woman who saw her as radiant 
like a crowned princess, like a royal diadem, like a jewel. In speaking of love and affection. But where did all of this come from? Is it just an analogy? Is it just a metaphor? Is it one of those silly things that preachers do? You know, oh, this reminds me of a story that never happened that they made up. Or is there something deeper here? Has God from the very beginning, from the moment that He made mankind, created male and female and allowed them to leave their respective homes and form one new unit? Was He trying to teach us something about a union that He wanted? About a oneness that He wanted? I think that He was. After hearing the rest of this message today, I doubt you will ever look at a Scripture that says something like, the Father and I are one. And we pray that you and I would be one, even as the Father and I are one. Ever that's the same. I think we probably ought to just jump into it. Jewish weddings provide for us a format. They provide for us an insight into this Hebrew Scriptures picture, this imagery. You know, we go to weddings sometimes in Christendom, and we don't know why they do the things that they do. You ever seen somebody light a unity candle and, you know, it was never really explained? You didn't get what it was? You ever been to a wedding where they left the two candles lit on either side? Boy, that's a deep problem. (laughs) Jews are the same way. They have rituals and formats in their weddings, and just like we don't understand everything that was handed to us in Christendom, they don't always understand all that was handed to them. But as we go back to the beginning, Hebraic culture and understanding of who the Hebrew people were, how they viewed the world, the language that they spoke, all of the sudden, a new, deeper image of the Scripture starts to appear. You start to see things like the original audience saw it, like it was intended to see. I want to remind you, if you think I'm making too much of a word like Ezer, right? Help sounds so trivial in the English Bible. We have over 200,000 non-technical words in our English uh, language. Okay? Over 200,000 non-technical. This doesn't even include words like megabytes and bytes and terabytes and all of those things. Non-technical language. Do you know how many there are in biblical Hebrew? 7,000. So each word has to be packed with more meaning than each English word does. Do you understand what I'm saying? We use words frivolously. And then at other times we use them like lawyers do for very precise meanings. Hebrews used words and imagery to paint something that was vivid, meant to get through your eye gate, your ear gate. Even the Bible speaks of aromas. It's trying to impact you in a way that maybe television does now or the theater did a hundred years ago. It was trying to make an impact on people with one resounding message. I suppose I ought to tell you how Jewish weddings start. How do our weddings start? What has to happen? How do we get participants for a wedding? We've got to have some young man who wants to marry some young woman. And just for reference, to me, young is anything under about 120. Some of the most exciting newlyweds I have ever known were Eddie and Eva Perkins in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they were in their late 70s when they got married. And when I... Asked him why they got married. He showed me a very peculiar scripture in Corinthians that I will never forget about why single people should be married. Yeah, Charlotte's read Corinthians. The rest of you are still thinking about that. 
when a Jewish groom wanted to find a bride, he used certain language when he found the one he wanted. Let's just for argument's sake say that Craig is talking with Charlotte. And he's the Jewish groom who is coming to make his proposal to Charlotte. He might say something like, Charlotte, I will take you out of Bert's house. Charlotte, I will rescue you or deliver you from this station that you're at in life. Charlotte, I will purchase you. I'll pay a price to your dad for the honor of being married to you. Charlotte, after that, I will come and take you to be with me where I am. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Let's turn to Exodus 6. In Jewish weddings, at least in ancient Jewish weddings, a groom used this same formula. And where did he get it? He saw his God as marrying the Israelite people. And God proposing to the Israelite people sounded like this. It's Exodus 6.6. 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. They saw this as a marriage proposal between God and His people. Now they celebrated this different ways. Those of you that have heard me teach on the Seder before. Seder is a Hebrew word that means the order of things. The Seder Passover meal, the order of the Jewish Passover, involves remembering each one of these promises where they were pledged or betrothed to their God. They celebrated each one with a glass of wine. Four of them in all. By the way, Jesus, His very first miracle, was that a what? A Gentile wedding or a Jewish wedding? You remember how many stone water jars John said was there? Not four. It's six. Each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I'm no mathematician, but let's just for argument's sake say that I did multiply correctly and we're talking about 180 gallons of water. But what did he do with it? What did he do with it? Y'all talk to me. I, I got a vacation schedule. I'll go to Padre right now. He made wine. He made wine. How much wine? A little bit? 180 gallons of wine. I don't care how big the party is. That's lots of wine. And when did he make it? He make it at the beginning? No, he, 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 made it, he made it in the middle, right? He made it after they already drank all the wine they had. The Jews apparently had no problem with wine. Every year they celebrated this Passover with four cups of wine. But in their hearts, this was the language of a groom speaking to his bride, making promises to her about what he would do. Interestingly enough, I've taught you that at the Passover meal that was the Last Supper, Jesus held up a cup. How do you know which cup? Well, there's only four, and he said, we won't drink the cup again until we get into the kingdom. So that would mean he's drinking the third. The third cup was the one where he promises to redeem you. And he said, in this cup... I make a covenant anew with you. You know what is even more beautiful than that, though? 
if Craig is proposing to Charlotte and he makes these four promises to her, I'm going to take you out of Bert's house. I'm going to deliver you from that kind of life. I'm going to pay a price for you. And I'm going to take you to be with me. He then would extend to her a glass of wine publicly in front of everyone. Do you know how everybody knows whether or not she accepts his proposal? She drinks it or doesn't drink it. So you ask me when Jesus holds up a third cup promising to redeem us. Oh, it means lots of beautiful things about a Passover. But in its very essence, it's a marriage proposal. You know what is really neat about this though? You have to put yourself out there in some way to proclaim your love to someone. Now you ladies, we live in different times and I understand different things are expected of you now than were ever expected before. But one of the burdens of being a young man is that from fifth, sixth grade on, you are expected to be the initiator of things. And there's a horrible price that comes with that. Because when some little boy crosses the gymnasium floor to your side where everybody's at at the dance and says, you know, Jennifer, I really think you're hot and I'd like to dance with you. There is the chance that she might say, oh, you must be kidding. I want to vomit looking at you. Get out of here. When we were first born again and we were learning about the prophetic realm and all of these things, we got a little carried away. And a young man that was gifted in prophecy, but like everybody, made some mistakes, prophesied to another young man. The girl, six doors down, is your wife. Propose. He shows up with a rose and a ring. The problem is God never told this girl. She slammed the door in his face. He was not the same for about a year. That's, I mean, it's funny. But he was not the same for about a year. Let's put the shoe on the other foot here. Who is proposing to whom? We have God making a proposal to you. What is He doing? He's putting Himself out there. He's empowering you. He's empowering you in a way that you would not let other people be empowered. He's empowering you in a way that allows you to accept Him publicly or reject Him publicly. And Genesis 6 tells us God's heart is filled with pain when we reject Him. Why do we have the experiences we do? Why does one long for a husband? Another endure the pain of a broken heart. Maybe these things are a picture for us of what our relationship with God is like. And maybe the Hebrews understood it and drew upon things. There's something else that happens. The groom would have to propose... He would also have to make a declaration before the bride drank her glass of wine and responded. It was not enough for him to give the standard groom's language of I will take you out, you know, I'll rescue you from your life, I'll redeem you and I'll take you to be with me. He also had to promise her something more. Right? Because every bride gets these promises now. Now this is a special burden for a Jewish groom because what's he going to come up with that hadn't been done before? Let's look at what our God said to Israel. He proposed to them in Exodus 6. In Exodus 19, He makes a special declaration or a special promise. Are you in Exodus 19? Tell me when you're there. I like it when you talk to me. It hurts my feelings when you don't. It's like I'm making a proposal to you and you're rejecting me when I ask you questions and you don't answer. Exodus 19. 
starting in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and to the Lord... I'm sorry. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now if you fully obey Me and keep My covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God's special declaration as a groom coming to make good on His promise to Israel was not only am I going to take you to be with Me, you're going to be more special and more favored to Me than any people on the planet. Now, ladies, let's consider the converse of this. Let's suppose that uh, TJ finds the lady, right? And he says, hello, lady. I'm going to take you from where you're at right now. And I'm going to change your whole life, baby, give you a new identity. And I will pay your daddy a price gladly. Then I'm going to take you to be with me. And you'll be like one of my many possessions. How do you think she responds to that? You know, you'll be right up there like the prized deer head I have on my wall. You'll be a trophy for me. She excited? But if he says, you'll be more important to me than anything else that there is, and out of all the peoples on the planet, you will occupy a special position that everyone else will look up to. How does she feel about that? God is making His proposal to the people. And He promises out of everybody on the earth, you will be my most treasured possession. For me, a nation of kings and priests. Now at this point, the bride has to respond verbally and then she gets handed a glass of wine. Her response verbally comes from Exodus 19.8. The people all responded, we will do. Everything the Lord has said. How do we respond in Christendom? How do you say when somebody says, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I do. The difference between Christians and Jews is an amazing thing and it runs into every facet of our lives. There was a community that wanted to outreach to the Jews in their area and they put, I found him on a bumper sticker. The Jewish response was, we never lost Him. And it just started a feud, but it illustrates the different ways we think. The Jews saw themselves as a people group, everyone married to God. Christians see ourselves as individuals walking with our personal Savior, like our little pocket God, right? There are elements of truth to both, but they responded in mass as a people group. We will marry you. And what did they say? We will do everything that you have commanded. Y'all did your homework, right? Before we get there, let's go back to this glass of wine. Because he's made a declaration. You're going to be my most treasured possession, baby. 1,600 years later, we are in Galilee. We're in the New Testament times now, okay? Where this tradition's been refined and refined and refined. Men like Ray Vanderlaan have taught on this. Men like uh, Rob Bell have taught on this. 
You stand out in front of everybody. You make the four declarations from Exodus 6. You promise her she will be a treasured possession. You wait for her response as you hand her a glass of wine. It's not enough for her to simply say she will do it. She now needs to drink the wine to show she's entering into a covenant with you. She does. You're excited. You're married, right? Wrong. When Joseph did this and he betrothed himself to Mary, they left each other. She went back to her father's house. He went to his father's house. In those days, the dwellings were called Insula. I-N-S-U-L-A. This was a multifamily dwelling. Because when the Scripture said in Genesis, you'll leave your father's house and you'll leave your mother's house and the two will join and become one, they understood this to be a lifetime of leaving their parents' influence. Leaving the groom's parents' influence, the bride's parents' influence, and making their own home. But they lived in geographical regions. They lived in regions that were designated by God. The tribe of Judah lived in an area designated to Judah. So as generations go by, I can't really leave and go start a new home. So they did something else. They created something called an insula, a multifamily dwelling. What would happen is the oldest guy still living owned a home. And every time one of his children got married, they built a new wing onto the home that was joined yet completely separate. Do you understand what I'm saying? We call these mother-in-law houses. <laughs> we bring our parents into our homes. In biblical times, you'd have never left your daddy's house. You would have just built on a new wing to it. Which makes for an interesting subject. The reason that it makes for such an interesting subject is I've got to go now. Let's say I've proposed to Jen. She drank the glass of wine. Fred's standing from a distance. My parents are standing from a distance. She goes back home to Fred's house. She lives in the same room she's always lived in. But what do I have to do? I have to go away. But it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I'll also come back to you. And if I come back to you, I'll take you to be with me where I am. Because in my father's house, there are many rooms. We've done this before. If it were not so, I would have told you. Did, did I copyright that? Did I originate that saying? Who did? Yeshua. In John 14, speaking as a groom to a bride, says, don't you worry, baby. I'm going away to prepare the kingdom that we will live in on the earth. And if I go away, I will come back to you and I will take you to be with me where I am because the promise of a groom was that you would be my treasured possession. You would live with me and me with you a new entity under the heavens. Now, this presented a special problem, though. We find it in Matthew 25, but I'll tell you about it. I don't own the house. Who owns the house? My father owns the house. It's good that I'm a carpenter because I have some skills, but I don't have final say. So I go back to Daddy's house and I begin to build. Now, if you have ten kids, let's just imagine here for a moment. you got ten kids. They all have differing levels of skills, don't they? I mean, one might be a fantastic cabinet maker. Another one, not so good with cabinets. Y'all reading me? So the father became the general contractor. 
What he did was say, Matthew, if you want to be married and you want to go get this bride, I want to supervise the building project. I will tell you when it's time. So that nobody would know the day or hour, only the Father. Did I make that one up or did somebody say that already? Yeshua said that one. That's right. And since only the Father knew the time, because only the Father could approve the building project as it's time, it's complete, the little bride had to wait at the window every evening wondering, will it be tonight or will it be some other night? What did I say about Matthew 25? That's right. How do we know that she's ready for me? What if she's gotten tired? What if she's thought, you know, it's been about a year now Eric's been building. I hear it's not going that well. He's losing his hair. He's gaining weight. That other young man is calling on me as well. I know I made a promise here, but the way he would know she was ready was she would light a lamp and put it in her window. This presented a very special problem. She had to wake up every day and think about whether or not she had enough oil in her lamp to show her groom she was ready. Because if he came and there was no lamp lit in the window, it meant she had given up on him. Did I make that one up? No, there was this story about ten virgins, some of whom didn't have enough oil in their lamp and some who did. And who was that spoken to? Us. That's right. The people of God. Because God is like a groom extending Himself, wanting to know whether you will join with Him, promising to make you a treasured possession. Oh, there's one more thing. Would you like to know? Because we could could quit now. No? Do you want to know? When I saw a lamp in the window, you don't get married alone at night. You want a party to happen. So in Israel, we don't have foghorns. We don't have PA systems. When I am excited because Daddy has said, the building wing of the house looks good, son. Go get your bride. I gather my closest friends. We dance through the streets and we blow shofars, announcing that I'm going to get my bride. She hears the shofar. She makes sure the lamp is full of oil right there. She rejoices, tells her whole house, and we all meet outside. Something else happens here. When we all meet outside. What was your homework about? Whole bus. That's right. K2 bus. Where do you think they got their custom from? So far, where did the New Testament Jews get all of their customs from? The Old Testament. That's right. They saw God laying down a pattern and then they walked out that pattern because they understood marriage to simply be a picture of what God wants to do with you. If you're single, praise God. He's already done that with you. If you are single and feel destined to be married, praise God, you have the right, the privilege of living out a picture for everyone else to see. Why do you think God hates divorce? That's why. So you want to know what happens next? Okay, good. Y'all are starting to talk to me. At least Mandy is. Nick is. I got the occasional nod from Fred. I'm doing good. (laughs) There's going to be a wedding now. We've announced it with trumpets. All of the people are beginning to gather. And usually on Tuesdays. I don't know why Tuesdays other than God said, 
that that day was doubly blessed. He said it was good twice on Tuesday. And the Jews read that in the Word and they said, you know, if we want to be married, we want our marriage to be on the only day in which God said it was good twice. I was in Israel twice. One time for multiple Tuesdays, and every Tuesday I saw Jewish weddings. I didn't understand what I was seeing, and now I do, and I want to go back. Numbers 15, God told all Jewish men to do something. They had to take these talit, this thing that I'm holding here, a prayer shawl. They had to tie knots in the corners of the prayer shawl. Those corners, those tassels, are called zitzit. These came to represent, as every Jewish man wore them, and Jesus was a Gentile guy, right? No, he's a Jewish guy. Uh, Boaz, he was a Gentile guy, right? No, he was a Jewish guy. Uh, Malachi, when Malachi's writing, he's writing to Gentiles, right? No, he's writing to Jews. Okay, so then this does make sense. We're not making it up. Because God told every Jewish man to wear a talit, a prayer shawl, with zitzit sticking out of it, corners tied with knots to remind him of his God-given responsibilities, commandments, a covering that would be... Because why were commandments given? That it might go well for you and for your household, your children after you. So he wore these reminding him of his divine responsibility, his covering given from God. So what I would do is I would go get my bride with trumpets. I would see her lamp in the window. I'd have all of my friends. And I would take off my prayer shawl. And I'd put four sticks under it. Let me take this down here. I'd put four sticks under it so that it formed something that looked like a canopy above our heads. Not very big, huh? Jewish people were never fat. No, I'm kidding. Not very big. As we stood under this canopy, it spoke of exclusivity. Mom, Dad, Love you lots. But there's only room in our new household for the two of us. Aunts, uncles, friends, relatives, this is an exclusive thing. I'm not going to bring more than one husband in and I'm not going to bring more than one bride in by New Testament times. But where do they get the idea for a canopy? I mean, who comes up with something like that? God said, wear the prayer shawl. Well, their example was that God had proposed to them with four promises in Exodus 6. That in Exodus 19, he made the declaration, you will be for me a treasured possession. They, like a bride, said, we will do everything that you've asked. And then what did God do next? He descended on a mountain in a canopy of darkness in the clouds. And they married him under it. So forever Jews get married under canopies. It symbolizes a couple things, but most of which is the Shekinah glory of God. Every Jewish marriage is blessed by the Shekinah glory of God. And it comes as the man accepts his covering and brings his household under it. We will do everything that you commanded. What is that? He hadn't even commanded anything yet. Jewish men, you have to understand, times were different. You ladies would have been married around 13. How about that, huh? You men would be in your mid-30s. Talk about an age difference. Yeah. Occasionally it wasn't that much, but that was an average thing. And this was a scary proposition. Can you imagine it would be a scary proposition? Scary. 
So what I would do is I would provide for you a ketubah. A ketubah is a legal written contract. And what the legal written contract would do is provide assurances to the bride and to the groom. It would say things like, Bride, I want to be your only husband. I want no other husbands besides me. That might be the very first thing in a ketubah. I made that up though, didn't I? Where have you heard that before? When God descended with a covering over him, the very first thing he told Israel is, Israel, you shall have no other gods alongside me. I want to be your only husband. It would tell the wife things like, this is how I want you to interact with everyone else. This is how our household will run so that it will go well with us and our children's children. In fact, this ketubah really had one purpose. Some people have defined it. Gabe sent me a text message today. One way to define the word ketubah, because it's so ancient, people have different ones, is it is written. Because what would happen is, over time, maybe the bride doesn't think the groom's living up to his end of the deal. And she'd say, is it not written? Or maybe the groom didn't think the bride was in it. He'd remind her, do you remember that it was written? It had one real purpose. I think Psalm 19 puts it like this. Your Word, O Lord, is flawless. I will trust in Your Word. God, when He married His people, provided a written contract for them to encourage a mutual level of trust. How many of you have viewed the Ten Commandments kind of like the Sopranos? TJ, I'm going to tell you what to do so that nobody gets hurt. Right? The law is, thou shalt not, or else I'm going to beat the tar out of you. Right? Bad rules, negatives. They're not. They're a loving encouragement of this is how I will act towards you. This is how I expect you to act towards me. And the end result is harmony. God was speaking to a young bride just out of Egypt, and He wanted to assure her that He would be a good groom. Come on, saints. That's a whole new light. What is our ketubah? You're holding it in your hands. It's the very thing that's supposed to rule your memory, fill your heart, and most importantly, guide your steps. Your ketubah. But you're still not married. Did you know that? You've just now taken your vows. You are still not married. We had to take our talit down from the hopa, And with all of our friends around, my bride and I would carry this to a very special place where no one else was invited until MTV came out in our new generation and now they sell these videotapes on the web. But in their day, your honeymoon was a private affair. Nobody videotaped them. And you put this above your bed. And this is where the marriage was consummated. Why would this be above the bed? Because the Shekinah God, the Shekinah glory of God, His very presence, provided the covering with which your marriage would prosper. And it's where Paul gets an idea like, oh, I don't know, the marriage bed is undefiled. God's Spirit, His blessing is there on what you're doing. That was a reminder for them so that when they brought up their children, they would bring up their children under the same covering. Then after that, everybody would be standing outside the door waiting for the announcement that God had blessed their marriage. 
And they would come out and celebrate and drink lots of wine, maybe 180 gallons worth, at least by New Testament times. With those things in mind, I want to talk to you about a progression in the Scripture. See, if I finish too early today, you'll think it's because I'm going on vacation. So we're going to preach long, 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 long. In Isaiah 62.5, you heard that God promised that the builder would marry them. Those are all warm, fuzzy feelings, and they're nice ones. But turn with me to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah was not a bullfrog, and he was not a friend of John Fogarty or anyone else. He was a Hebrew prophet. And Jeremiah prophesied during a time period where Israel had not acted very much like a bride. In fact, in the Bible we see the pure bride of Christ contrasted with something. It's this lady who lives in Babylon. What was her name? We don't know her name. We just know she was a whore. What an ugly word, right? But the Bible uses it. The bride is contrasted with the whore. How do you know the difference between a bride and a whore? They're both involved in the same kind of activities. So how do you know the difference? One's faithful and one's not. What's the difference between a sheep and a goat? One's faithful to do what the kingdom's about and one's not. The same choice is laid before us all the time. It's put in different ways. Are you all in Jeremiah 2? In Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 2. How about that? Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of the harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. God says, I remember when we were first married. You were a devoted young bride. And if anybody messed with you, oh, I destroyed them. Did you hear that? That's what he's saying. You could hear the young men in our church say the same thing. We were at the movies, and somebody was looking at my wife because she's hot. And you know what I did next? Have you all never heard young people tell those stories? I think we all told them. God is speaking like a lover about His bride. The problem is, He goes on to say in verse 5, this is what the Lord says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The bride who was promised to the groom promised to be faithful, now was not looking to the hills wondering whether the Lord was her helpmate. She had chosen the other gods around her and God felt as if He was being rejected by her and that their love was worthless. Isn't it sad in a movie when you have to watch somebody like Woody Harrelson know that his wife is with another man? Doesn't that stir the deepest emotions in you? You feel better if it's a secret. In that wicked movie, it was very public. Those emotions are meant to stir something in you. This is how God describes our relationship when we're not faithful to Him. And those are the emotions He assigns to Himself. That sick, nauseous feeling. One of the most unfortunate experiences of my life was a good friend of mine's wife was unfaithful to him. Not once, but several times. And it was not reconcilable. She didn't want him anymore. 
a guy that worked in his workplace became husband number two. And so my friend had to drive past the house that he built with her, look through the window that he picked out for his new house, see another man sit in his lazy boy with his children and his wife there. He's the most broken human being I've ever seen. He's still not recovered and it's been 10 years. That kind of emotion is what we cause in the heart of God when we are not faithful to Him. He's given us a marriage contract and very great and precious promises because He wants to encourage our trust in Him. He wants to encourage us to live not like we're dating Him, picking Him up for Sundays dressed in nice clothes, but He wants us to go to sleep each night with Him on our mind. He wants us to wake up each morning with Him on our mind. Listen to what He says here, verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Has there ever been somebody that just traded in their husband for a new one? Yeah, they're not gods at all. God doesn't feel inferior to them. He's just confused about the bride's choice. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, water and cisterns is an interesting thing. The Proverbs, Proverbs 5.15, speaks about water. Those of you in the marriage class know this as intimacy. And it says, shall you pour your water into the streets? No, no. It should be yours and hers alone to drink. Speaking of what happens in a marriage intimacy-wise, staying solely, exclusively between those two people. And what did God say? They've forsaken me a spring of intimacy, a spring of vibrant life. They've dug their own cisterns, and those things can't even really provide satisfaction or hold water. Sounds like a broken-hearted lover, doesn't it? How about this? How about John 7:37? If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me, the spring of living water. How about that? That is an invitation to a wayward bride to return to her husband without penalty because Jesus was offering to pay the penalty. How beautiful is that? I tell you, this is the first time all week I've been able to do this without tears. Next time you pick up the book of Hosea, understand this entire book is God saying, I love you. And you cheated on me. Didn't the kids that you have that you're so proud of are somebody else's? And yet even in that book, you know what he promises them in the first chapter? Yet, if you're willing, you'll be called sons of God. He's willing to repent from anger and immediately forgive. Wouldn't you say that's pretty big of God? Wouldn't you? We couldn't even read in church with a straight face chapters like Ezekiel 23. He says, you know, you're supposed to be a bride and you've acted like a prostitute. And not a normal prostitute. Like a prostitute that took her earnings and went and bought more sexual favors for herself. God said that about His bride. And you know why? You know what they were guilty of? Not trusting Him in difficult times leaning on the advice 
wisdom and knowledge of the nations that were around them. I ask you, saints, don't we do that? Have you ever looked at the Jewish people and heard Jesus' words that said, oh, wicked and adulterous generation, and thought, yeah, those Jews were wicked, were they? How about us? His very spirit is in us. He gave us a special engagement present, a taste of what was to come. His goodness in us at all times. John 3, Jesus is being spoken of in the 29th verse by John the Baptist. And he says, I'm going to decrease, he's going to increase. Because the friends are very happy when they hear the bridegroom with his bride. John saw that God was making a new and fresh appeal to his people. And that some were receiving it. And he was excited about what Jesus was doing. Look at Revelation 19. We'll close with just a couple more scriptures. Saints, if this one didn't hit you in the heart somewhere, you need to go get an x-ray. You know? Go get you an MRI, something that can see soft tissue and see if something's beating in your chest. We can't become so callous sitting in these chairs that these ideas don't move us because they're real. These are not made up. This is how God chose to communicate with mankind through His Word and the emotions that He wanted to convey. Anybody... Dear God, don't raise your hand. Anybody here ever felt cheated on? Then you can identify with God. Anybody here ever forgiven somebody who cheated on them? Now you can really identify with God. Now here's the horrible part. We've all played both of those parts in some way or another. But it's time to make good on our vows. To be filled with the Spirit of God. I love Him. And what I feel more than anything else when I read these things... It's not, oh, adulterous generation. I hear that the God of the universe desires me. The most basic need in any woman, regardless of what they said, men, you should write this down and pay me for the advice, is that they feel desired. It's the most basic need in any woman. It comes right out of Genesis 3. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Women are driven by the need to be desired. If you don't believe that, look at every magazine. What are they trying to project? Something desirable. Look at first thing women do when other women walk in the room is examine their clothing and everything about them trying to rate them on a scale of whether or not they're desirable. They want their daddies to desire them. They want their husbands to desire them. And if they don't find them in those places, they will find a world who will desire them for the wrong reason. You know what men need? Again, women, you should pay me for this. They want to feel like their occupation is worthwhile. The things that they do all day, every day, whatever it is, they derive their worth from it. Because part of Adam's curse was that he had worked the ground and earned his living from it. And so when you find a man that is not content with his job or doesn't have a job, you find an insecure man. You know what's really neat about this? Bone of bone, flesh of flesh, is that they're both equipped to meet each other's needs. He can show her that she is desired. And she can show him that she appreciates that he's trying to provide in some way. And both deepest needs are fulfilled. Let's put that on our relationship with God. He looks at us and He knows that there's something about us that is wayward and we need to know that He desires us. What does He want from us? He wants us to appreciate what He's doing for us and live like we did. Come on, isn't that beautiful? Why don't the angels marry? Why will people neither be given in marriage 
nor married in the life to come. Could it be because in that place, in the perfect kingdom of heaven, it's as if we were all married, we're all one with God? Could you say that your best married moment, and I literally mean whatever you would define as your very best moment, that height of human existence and trying not to say ecstasy, but I guess I just said it, is just a picture of what eternity will be like with God? What has He offered you? Are they very great and precious promises? I think they are. In Revelation 19, we hear something. This is an important message. Revelation 19, look at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah is an international word that means everybody praise God. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. How do you make yourself radiant for King Jesus? You walk as He walked. You do the righteous things that He has called you to do. And it is like He looks at you like I looked at Jennifer when the music started to play and she stepped down the aisle. I almost fainted. It's only once in my life I was ever forced to my knees by anything. That's when I got born again. But the next closest moment in my life was when the music played and she stepped into the aisle. He looks at you that way when you live like He lived. Nothing will stop it. There will be a wedding of the Lamb. But Matthew 22 teaches us that some will be found at that wedding who are not dressed properly and they will be thrown out. I've heard many convincing arguments about what this is. But the one that my heart has settled on is that wealthy people provided garments for the attendance of their wedding so that they would not be embarrassed and they would be clothed properly. And if you found somebody at your wedding not clothed properly, it's because they had refused the garment that you had given them. And what did Revelation 19.7 just say the garment is? Righteous acts of the saints. God has prepared in advance, Ephesians 2.8-10 says, good works for you to do. He's already laid your garment out. All you got to do is walk in it. And then He will see you as a beautiful bride even if we've acted much like horse. He's saying this to a group of people He has already called prostitutes many times. But He is so willing to forget and to forgive and move on. He's much more willing to forget and forgive and move on than we would be. Revelation 21. Look at the second verse. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There was a four-part promise given. I will take you from your father's house. I will rescue you or deliver you, pay a price for you from that life. I will redeem you. I will take you 
to be with me. The wedding was complete when the groom had proposed, when he had declared his intentions, when she had given verbal acceptance, when her deeds through drinking the wine began to show that she agreed, when they got married under the Shekinah glory of God after He came for her with trumpets, identifying her by a light. His Father's house was now ready. And the fourth part of the promise is right here. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He's saying, I have come for My bride, and we are now one forever. Do you remember that in the Jewish weddings you were betrothed and then there was a long time period where you were waiting? We are waiting for the consummation of our marriage with our God. And once it's consummated, look at Revelation 22. This will be our last verse from Revelation. I want you to see if you can pick up on this change. Always we have heard the voice speaking from heaven. We've heard the Spirit of God talking. In fact, to recap that, in, Genesis, in Revelation 22:16, instead of 17, watch this. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Who brought this testimony? Jesus' angel, speaking for God to a man. Listen to the shift in who's speaking now. The Spirit... And the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. It has always been God speaking to the bride. God speaking about the bride. Now God's Spirit and the bride acting as one are speaking. This book from beginning to end is a marriage story. The last verses of our Bible have God's Spirit and the Bride speaking as one entity for the first time in human history. You want to know what God is like? God is like a man who wants to marry a beautiful young woman, only she doesn't act so beautiful. And He is patient with her for many thousands of years, providing every assurance that He is worth it. But in the end, He gets His beautiful bride. It's Ehad. It's many members making up one body. I want to close with Matthew 4. I'll quote it for you. In Matthew 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. And you remember that in the 8th verse, the devil says, If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Luke adds, they've been given to me and I can give them to whoever I wish. What was Jesus' response? It is written, that's your ketubah, Worship the Lord and Him alone. Your very first promise to your husband God, your marriage contract contained in the written word that the Jews call the Ketubah and that you call your Bible, says that you will not share your affections with anyone other than the living God. And every attempt at the kingdoms of the world, every attempt at any other thing is adultery. It's wrong. We're going to worship and love Him and Him alone and know that we are desired. He wrote this entire book to provide for you something. What was a ketubah for? To provide for you a means of trusting Him. 
that what he said he would do for you, he would do. When you look into this, that's what you ought to see. A groom who will do for you everything that he said he would do because he loves you and desires you and finds some satisfaction in you appreciating what he does. How awesome is that? If you think I'm trying to make God more like a man, you're wrong. We're in the business of trying to make men more like God. Do you understand the difference? Stand up. Let's pray.